Can science reverse aging? Welcome to Answers News for Wednesday, January 18, 2023. I am Dr. Georgia Purdom. This is Patricia Engler and Rocket Rob Webb. And today we'll be discussing scientists reversing aging in mice, in addition to some other news stories. But let's start with our first one here. Old mice grow young again in a study. Can people do the same? So people for many, many, many years, right, have been looking for the fountain of youth. And and from a scientific standpoint, I'm a geneticist, so people for a long time have wondered, well, what causes aging? You know, it, it seems like a pretty straightforward thing, but honestly, we don't know a lot of what causes those things. And so this is an interesting study for really understanding that, that maybe it's not just mutations in the DNA, which people have thought that maybe that was the reason for a long time, but maybe it's things that actually control the DNA, um, which is an area called epigenetics, uh, things, factors that control the DNA is really what leads to aging in mice. But why is this really, I mean, why should this issue be a concern for people that are Christians? I mean, it all sounds kind of cheesy to me. I don't know. It's uh, the mice, but (laughs) (laughs) sorry. Um, I'm I'm not a geneticist, but I am an engineer. So what I really appreciate about this article is just all the computer analogy that they use here. You know, they're talking about old computers uh, having uh, corrupted software. Uh, They're talking about rebooting the system, having backup copies of software. And I just kept thinking about just the dumb luck of evolution, just having all this perfectly designed. I mean, it's clearly designed as as we're seeing this. And um, of course, there's there's a lot of reification fallacies as well in here. It uh, talks talks about the cell panicking and uh, losing their way home and all this different things. So just make sure you watch out for that. Um, But what what I really, uh, what I I thought was interesting is at the very end, it talks about how billions of dollars are being poured into these animals anti-aging, funding all sorts of methods, essentially turn back the clock, and then they end the article by basically saying, because every day your clock is ticking. And it just reminds me, why is it? Why are we spending so much of this money, billions of dollars, trying to basically, uh, you know, prevent us from death, having us have longer lives? And it's just a reminder that 10 out of 10 people die, right? Every, every single one of us is going to die. And they should just think about our mortality, that we are going to die. We will stand before God's throne in that judgment. And so, like Hebrews 2.15 says, everyone has a fear of death, and we're all enslaved by that fear. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, uh, God put eternity on our hearts. So every single one of us, we're all, uh, we're all looking for that way to have eternal life. But what, what kind of reminds me of these type of articles is, you know, by ourselves, we're never going to be able to accomplish those kinds of things. We're never going to be able to uh, do that by ourselves. It's only through Jesus Christ. It's only through the word that he talks about that we can actually have eternal life, like it says in John three sixteen. Yeah, that's right. Humans can't redeem themselves, but you have all these kinds of almost works-based salvation ideas, sometimes within the scientific community. And like you said, the fact that billions of dollars are being poured into anti-aging <clears throat> research shows you that science has values that go into it and into the kind of questions that are asked into the assumptions that are used. In this case, like you said, valuing long life and humans are ultimately meant to live forever, but the solution isn't in technology. We can delay death through medical breakthroughs, but we can't solve humanity's core problem and bring satisfaction. So we might be able to make a longer life, but is that a satisfied longer life? Yeah, and I think, you know, from um, 
just looking at this from a science, purely scientific standpoint, there are some really good things, you know, even though we know we all die and you can't stop aging, so to speak, but um, there are diseases in people, for example, in, in children, it's called progeria, which leads to really rapid aging at a very young age. Um, and all of us, as we get older, there's certain things that would be good to maybe at least slow down or mitigate um, the effects of the fall. Uh, for example, people that are older tend to break their bones easier, okay? And they tend to have, take longer to repair. So some of these things may have some really good applications. It's good to study this and understand this um, so that we can help mitigate the effects of the fall, um, but, um, but we're all still going to die, and we all will stand before God someday, and so it's important that we, um, that we again, share the gospel with as many people as possible. We're not going to live forever, <laughs> um, and we, well, we will, but not here not on earth, earth, right? Not in our earthly bodies. We will not live forever, but we will live eternally um, in either heaven or hell, and so we want people, right, as many people as possible to live in heaven with God, um, and so that is why we share the gospel and why, that, why that's so important. Exactly. So the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And we've all earned those wages. Romans chapter 3 says, no one does good, no, not one. That We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that's what makes the good news such good news, that Jesus Christ paid that ultimate price for us guilty sinners. Yep. Okay. Is defying parents the only ethical alternative? Now, when you read this title, you might think, okay, defying parents. So you think of children, obviously, defying parents. But this is not talking about that. Um, this is talking about a particular uh, journal called Young Children, which is basically for people that are involved in early childhood education. So like preschool teachers and things like that. So it's more of an academic journal. But they have had a lot of um, case studies over the years in which they have looked at things where... They're basically telling um, teachers in this journal to um, override the wishes of the parents when it comes to a lot of these gender issues that children are facing, so to speak, in schools today and facing in their own lives that um, who has the right, basically, to say what is right for these children? Is it the teachers or is it the parents? That's right. And it's interesting that they frame this as a matter of ethics, too, saying that teachers have a moral obligation to do this. But actually, in standard biomedical ethics, kids are not considered competent to provide informed consent. In other words, they're not considered mature enough and able to make their own medical decisions, much less about things that can have consequences on their developing brains and bodies for the rest of their lives. So from a pure medical ethics standpoint, that shouldn't even be on the table. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing we even have to have this discussion, really, you think about it. I mean, we, we can't just take this for granted that, yeah, as parents, we have the responsibility to take care of our children. We have that direction. Um, and then if, if you guys are kind of unfamiliar with the whole transgender movement, definitely encourage you guys, go on to our YouTube channel. Brian Osborne, one of our speakers, did a really good job. Uh, he did a video called When Trans People Regret Transitioning. He talks about the lifelong consequences of those transitions. And that's actually one of the, the things that I did agree with in this article that the author talked about, You know, basically talking about those potential life, lifelong consequences. Yeah, there are going to be consequences, not just physically, but also spiritually. And so that's what we talk about all the time. It's not just a physical battle, but this is also a spiritual battle right now. It's a spiritual battle for the lives and souls of the next generation. Um, and so also just be a, be a reminder that we need to be aware of what's happening at these public schools all across the country, not just in the state, but all around. Um, parents, just be aware this is what's happening in these state schools today. 
Yeah, and one of the things they talk about in the article was even not just with the whole transgender issue, but other issues, like they talked about drinking milk, okay, something as simple as that, and basically saying, well, the preschool teacher shouldn't force the child to drink milk, even though that's the parent's preference, even though that's what the parent wants, because it might cause emotional harm to the child and be disrespectful to the child, and I'm like, wait a minute, like the child is a child, right? They don't know what's best for them, and that's why God has put parents in authority over children. And even if a child is in a school, a teacher, not saying, you know, they do have authority over that child, but still have to defer to the parents, certainly. But I thought, okay, so who defines emotional harm, first of all? How do we define that? Secondly, are we going to defer to the child in other things? Like how, you know, we talk about consistency with these arguments, because there are children that want to just eat junk food, stay Mm -hmm. up late, go play in the street. Okay, so do we say, well, we don't want to say no because it might emotionally harm them, you know, or whatever. That's not how that works. For sure. And like it said that teachers have a moral obligation to allow kids, like what you're saying, to strongly express their sense of self. But again, where do you draw the line with that? Because what if they want to identify as an animal, an inanimate object, maybe a a serial killer or something? So it's a worldview issue, and it comes down to who is the authority for truth. So they're basically saying kids should be the authority for determining their own truth. So then it it then becomes an issue, parents' rights versus kids' rights, and they frame it as respecting the child versus respecting the child's biology or respecting the child's parent. So it it is a worldview battle for sure. And going off what Georgia said, I actually have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old at home. And I can tell you, it is a battle (laughs) trying to get them to eat their vegetables, brush their teeth, go to bed, because they want to stay up all night. They want to eat junk food. And am I just going to let them have what they want because of their so-called emotional stability? No, I want to do what's best for my child. I want them to, to... to get the nutrients that they need. I want them to brush their teeth. I want them to clean up their room. You know, it's um, even though it, it sometimes causes a big tantrum, you know, they don't want to eat anything, but we think about what's best for them. And that's what it is. As parents, that's right. what we're called to do. And that's really the, the foundational unit that God created, right, is the family. Um, it's the, the father and the mother and the children. And that is the foundation of society. And I think many times in articles like this, it's not just about defining <coughs> parental rights, but it's about doing away and trying to destroy the family and the state. You know, we talk, Patricia talks a lot about, you know, this Marxist ideology that we see in our society today, the state wanting to be the family, right? The state wanting to step in and do those things for people not, the family. That's a good point. Yep. All right. House passes born alive abortion bill. And so this was basically a bill that says that if a child is born alive as a result of an abortion procedure, so the abortion procedure doesn't go correctly, the child is born alive, that the the doctors would do everything within their power to save the life of that child. Um, And so it it just kind of like boggles your mind to think Mm -hmm. that um, we, we even have to try to pass a bill like this um, because, it, it, because, again, doctors aren't, right? Because this is supposed to be abortion and the, the idea is that the child would die as a result of this. Well, if they're born alive, we just we let them die, right? Because that was, what, that was the original intention anyways. And so that we even have to have legislation for this is just, it's hard to, it's hard to fathom. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing like, that we can't just take this for granted. And what, what really surprised me was the vote here. It was 220 to 210. And I'm just thinking, like, how could you vote no on this? I mean, just um, you have a child right in front of you that was born. How could you not take care of that child who was made in the image of God from the moment of fertilization? That, value, that life has value because that life is made in the image of God, precious and wonderfully made. And by the way, we actually have one of the best, I would say, best in the world, 
uh, pro-life exhibits here, fearfully and wonderfully made. So uh, if you guys haven't checked it out, come on down to Creation Museum, um, check it out here. And and just what, what I thought was interesting though was a lot of these Republicans. I think what's part of the the root issue here and why we have such issues with these bills is it's essentially they're trying to find this middle ground on the issue. Basically, they're trying to take that stance of neutrality, and um, it's something we say here all the time. Neutrality is a myth. There is no neutrality. You're either for me or against me, is what Jesus Christ says. You know, so we, we have to make sure. As Christians, we're not compromising on the truth, especially in this area of abortion, because abortion really is murder. That's what we say here all the time. And we need to make sure that we start acting like it, like it is murder. So we have to make sure we can't fail our preborn neighbors because their lives are literally at stakes. So we need to make sure we're standing up for the preborn. We're standing on God's word for everything. And it goes back to Genesis. I mean, we say this all the time. Uh, we get the value from life based on Genesis chapter one, that we're all made in God's image. We're all precious image bearers of God from the moment of fertilization. Absolutely well said. And when you don't have that worldview foundation, these inconsistencies come up. And that's what bills like this highlight. So in this case, without this bill, you can have two babies born at the same developmental stage in the same hospital. In one room, they're trying to save the child. In the other room, they're trying to take the child's <coughs> life. So that should show you that there's something very off here. And those inconsistencies are also present still in the womb as well. So one thing is that you have to borrow moral content. In other words, you have to borrow the idea of morality from outside of a secular worldview if you want to say that killing someone is wrong. So I do have an article coming out, I think January 22nd, that shows you how to quickly spot some of these inconsistencies within the abortion issue. And one quick way to do that is something I call the right to kill test. So it's basically you take any situation, any argument for abortion and ask, okay, so would you have a right to kill a postnatal, in other words, a born, a post-born person in the same situation. So say um, someone who is unconscious or someone who might be an inconvenience to their caregiver, would you have a right to kill that person based on that reason? Always the answer is no. And people often recognize that even if they can't explain why within their worldview. Some ethicists are a little more consistent within their worldview and say, well, it's right, it's right to kill those people too. But then that leads to all kinds of other issues clearly. So again, keep an eye out for those uh, types of articles. We have more content going to be coming out on, on that type of thing in the future from our various YouTube channels and different programs. So stay tuned. Yeah, and there's been a lot of these types of bills, um, you know, even recently, like amendments to states, constitutions, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, as to what um, what the states are going to do now. And so um, we've. it was really sad in the last election to see a lot of these bills not pass, laws not pass. And I think part of it is because there's a lot of confusing language in the bills. I don't think they're very, very um, clearly worded. Legalese. Yeah, and there's a lot of propaganda around it too, by, sadly, by um, people that are pro-abortion and saying things like, well, this is going to prevent women who have miscarriages from getting the help that they need. No, that's, that's just propaganda, right? And, and that's the problem with it. And so I would just really encourage Christians, anytime something like this comes up in your state, to first of all, really look at the language, how it's worded, and understand how you should vote, um, to vote for life, right? And to, vote, and to really think about these issues and be educated about these issues so that you can vote properly so we can get these things passed to be able to save the lives of these unborn children. And so it's just really, really a reminder to all of us that we have, um, we have a duty to that, a civic duty and a moral duty and a biblical duty to do those things. Yep, good reminder to go out there and vote, vote properly. And how we know how to vote properly, again, it goes back to God's word. It goes back to that yep. biblical foundation. That's how we know yep. how to vote properly. Does it align with God's standards or not? 
Right, scientists study life origins by simulating a cosmic evolution. Okay, so my first question is, when I look at something like this, how do you simulate a cosmic evolution? Because this is something that's happened in their mind um, four billion years ago, okay? Or maybe even before that, maybe even, you know, because they're talking about these things happening out in the universe, so to speak. Um, so that's older, that's supposedly 15 billion years old. So how do you know what those conditions were like? I mean, how can you even, I mean, you're just having to guess, right? And you're having to put a lot of intelligent design um, into this, right? To be able to make this happen. But, but basically what they, they've, they've decided they've come up with this, right? And they know what it was like. And that they find these certain amino acids, right? On um, things like asteroids. And so could that have seeded life on Earth or been some of the, the starting points? And just so you know, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, right? And proteins are what make us up mainly. Um, we have fats and sugars and, and nucleotides, but mainly it's proteins. And so uh, the idea is that if we have amino acids, then we could have life. Right, and you see in these types of simulation and, and model-based experiments, first of all, when you hear the word simulation or model, you can immediately start asking what assumptions went into that. Models are only as good as the assumptions that they're founded on, and in this case, it's very evolution-based assumptions, clearly. And then, again, the, another fallacy to watch out for in any of these types of experiments that try to explain how something could have happened, usually they're implying that something did happen a certain way because it could have happened a certain way, but that's actually a logical fallacy called the appeal to possibility. It's not guaranteed that something did evolve because they can think of a possible explanation how it might have in a very remote realm done so. So again, even if you can make, in this case, the building blocks of life, that would be like showing that natural processes, or processes as you say in the States, can somehow produce shapes that look like letters. And that's very different from establishing that these natural processes can string those letters together in such a way to make, say, a instruction manual for building and maintaining and flying a space shuttle. Borrowing those processes, can you say that? Borrowing? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> She's from Canada, by the way. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about the building blocks of life and something I always think of, you know, I have a three-year-old, we like to play Legos together all the time. We like to make uh, all sorts of cool stuff, you know. You have a pile of Legos and you start throwing it at the wall. Is that going to make the Millennium Falcon all of a sudden uh, kind of pop up cool. no i mean even if you have the building blocks we'll take that you know we, we, at least we'll give that to it you're still not going to have life yeah it doesn't if matter. i take you a bunch of amino blocks. acids and shake it up okay <laughs> it doesn't matter how long you There's do no it for life that's if you do it for billions form. of years it's not going to form and anything they didn't even make the type of amino acids that they find in meteorites anyway and what did he say about the type of well, the, the one amino acid that they find a lot is glycine, and that is the simplest of all the amino acids, okay? Because they all have the same basic structure, but then they have what's called an R group that varies among the 20 amino acids that are needed for life. So the R group for um, glycine is hydrogen. <laughs> That's it. Um, some of them are much more complex than that, and there's 20 that you need for life. So they're not finding all 20 on these asteroids. And number two, they, um, so amino acids have a certain um, orientation in space, okay? In physical space. So life only uses left-handed amino acids, but the ones on the asteroids are both left-handed and right-handed, okay? Um, so they're mixtures of those. So there's all kinds of issues with it. Uh, even if, okay, even if, let's say all 20 amino acids are there, and let's say they're all left-handed, it's still 
is not going to give you life because life requires information. Right? We don't know how to assemble the amino acids in a way that gives you life. You have to have an information. In order for you have to have information, you have to have an information giver. Right? And the only one that can do that is God, um, the only one that's able to do those things. So we see this all the time um, with trying to explain how life originated. Right? It, once you get life going, that's a whole different story with evolution. But if you can't even explain how it got going in the first place, you know, we got, we got to go back to the basic problem, right? Let's not even worry about evolution. How do you get this? And so they're always trying to push it into outer space to give more time to get these things. But without information, without an information giver, you do not have life. So again, again, you see these kind of articles, they reject the obvious that God was the ultimate designer of everything. They reject that and trying to come up with any kind of excuse to essentially uh, remove God from their thinking. They, they don't want God, and that really is the issue. It's not a knowledge issue. It is a heart issue. It's what we say again and again. Yep. So this next article, this is kind of a surprising article to find in just the regular secular media, but it says, what climate crisis? And so what the author of this article tries to do is show that now, his time frames are all off. He's not a Christian. He doesn't believe in biblical account of creation and that the world is only 6,000 years old. So his time frames are really off. But his ideas are, are absolutely spot on in the sense of he's saying that, you know, there's lots of things that affect our climate. Um, and, and they have in the past. We see evidence of that. And we know that even from a biblical standpoint. But not, not one of them has been man-caused, okay? They've been things like the cycle of the sun and, and other things, and not one of them has been like too much carbon dioxide or issues with that. And so it's really interesting to see something like this and refreshing. Right, <laughs> and how he's coming from long age assumptions and evolutionary secular assumptions. And even with those assumptions, you still can't make it work in the way that certain activists are seeing that it does. Now that's not to say humans have zero effect on our environment because obviously we do need to be good stewards of it, but it is just showing that even without Christian, uh, a Christian, a biblical starting point for understanding the world, you still don't quite get to the point that you might be reading about on the media. Yeah, like uh, Patricia was saying, we need to make sure that we, we look at this issue, this all the climate change with a biblical framework. We need to be looking at this from the biblical worldview that we don't deny that the climate has been changing ever since the global flood of Noah's day. And like uh, Patricia was saying, we need to make sure we have proper dominion. We need to be taking care of the earth because God grant, granted us that dominion to take care of his creation. Um, and so that's one of the things that I thought was just so interesting is over and over again, you know, they're, they're basically saying that, um, you know, it, it wasn't man-made. It wasn't all these different things. And there, there's a lot of good one-liners in here. And I think one of my favorites is um, uh, the, the author, basically, he, he basically says, if you want to stop climate change, you have to stop plate tectonics, stop variations in the Earth's orbit, and stop variations in solar output. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Well said there. And so that's what we say all the time. You know, it's like it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's something that we can bank on. God promises that, you know, cold and heat, the seasons uh, will continue, Genesis 8.22. So we can bank on that. We can bank on God keeping this creation until the very last day. And that there was a major change in the past. You know, a lot of times they'll say the present is the key um, the past is the key to what's going on right now. So how it's happened in the past is how it's happening right now. They don't take into account any catastrophes or anything like that. Um, and so that's problematic. And, and so we know that a flood occurred, you know, about 4,000 years ago. We know that there, that caused a major, you know, climate change and that the earth is just still kind of settling down as a result of this. We know there was one major ice age that occurred right after the flood. And so we know that there have been those changes in the past and caused climate change. But again, 
None of that is man-caused, so to speak. And so we have to be really careful when people say, trust the science. And we've learned that a lot over the last several years, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but we yeah. see this in, in the gender area. We see this in you know, so many other things. And so we have to be really, really careful um, that we realize there's, that things are usually way more complex than we realize. There's a lot more going on. And, and really use our, our, world, our biblical worldview to evaluate those Absolutely. things, like you say, and trust God's word. And it is yep. a biblical yep. worldview yep. that gives you the foundation for mm -hmm. caring about the climate and humans in it in the first place. Yeah, yeah because exactly. in the atheistic worldview, why bother? I mean, everything's just matter yep. in motion. Everything's just time and chance acting on matter. So in that worldview, why care? So you actually see them borrowing from the biblical yep. worldview to even have that. So obviously, their argument just doesn't hold water. I think that's yep. the bottom line. Yep. Get it? Hold water. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> moving on from the pun. Uh, out of left field, uh, USC's School of Social Work bans the, world, the word field because it's racist, apparently. Okay, so this yeah. is yet another example. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time on this because it's yet another example yeah. of how we can't mm -hmm. use a certain word because it might have some, in certain contexts, has a connotation that could be derogatory towards a certain group of people. This one being um, phrases like, um, uh, like going into the field, like if we say someone's going into the field or doing field work, that might have connotations for descendants of slavery and immigrant workers that are not benign. So, but again, okay, so you can't be consistent with that. Again, so should we throw the word trade out? because it's mm -hmm. been used in slave trade. I mean, context is king. You have to look at the context in which the word is used in order to derive its meaning. That's right, and again, like a biblical worldview is why we know that slavery is wrong in the first place, and that's yeah. why you have um, strong Christians who are so involved in the abolition movement. So then when people try to manipulate language in certain ways, the article pointed this out a little bit, it is an attempt to be the authority for defining truth, but again, you can't do that consistently. You can't have a consistent outlook without starting with a theistic and especially biblical worldview. So in this case, like what you're seeing, practical issues come up. Uh, even outside the slavery context, think about some other historical atrocities. Should we not use the word concentration because that brings up connotations of concentration camps? What about what about Christians say you have immigrants who are fleeing from religious persecution in a certain country, uh, maybe their relatives were shot for being Christians, should either not for use expressions in everyday life like taking a shot at something. If you're going to do this, you have to do it consistently and that is going to be impossible to hold up. So. So also, as long as you're not using words in a demeaning way, you don't want to erase concepts from history because otherwise you can't learn from history. Trying to erase history does go back to that kind of Marxist mentality we were talking about a little bit earlier. So all things to watch out for. Yeah, like Patricia was saying, I mean, re there's really no limit to this. Once you open up that door, I mean, pretty soon, if they keep on going on this trend, they're going to have to not even be able to stare at each other. They <laughs> can't even use words at that point. So, yeah. um, I mean, it, it just reminds me, like, like we were talking about, the biblical worldview is actually what gives us the foundation for logic, for rationality, for reason. Every single anti-biblical worldview has to borrow those things. And the anti-biblical worldview, like the atheistic, naturalistic one, uh, they don't have a foundation for rationality. So, again, they're, they're actually just being consistent with it. So, by throwing rationality out the door because they don't have that foundation. That's why we're seeing these kind of things. Um, so, I mean, just, it's just, just a stupid idea. <laughs> just, well, just a dumb absurd. idea. I mean, it's just absurd. And um, it, it, at least I liked all the, all the good puns in here. I at least circled all those. They covered all the bases, of course. And 
get it bases, yeah. left, right, and center all over the place. They said it's time that conservatives level the playing field. Let's leave it all on the field and play to win. The author is yeah. having fun with yeah. that. There you go. I, I like that part. That was so, entertaining for but me. But it is important that we not let people like redefine things. Like They're wanting to redefine man, what man and woman mean. I mean. The dictionary has now changed for the definition of those things. And that becomes, again, a problem because how can we use language if it can be totally modified, changed, and controlled by the state, which if you haven't read 1984, <laughs> the famous book, you probably should. Um, because again, that's the whole idea that the state controls these things and, and we don't want that. I mean, that's not a good thing. And so again, we have to be reasonable with these things and understanding with these things. And it's important to, again, assert those basic truths that are upheld by God's mm -hmm. word. Yep. Okay, lastly, prayers for Damar. Faith emerges in moment of crisis, even as America grows more secular. So this actually, so Rob, you were watching the football game. I was. I, I, I've watched a lot of football over my life, and I was actually watching the, the game. I was watching the Bengals, our home team here in the, in the Cincinnati area, Hude. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I was actually that? watching this game, and it was, it was probably, I, I don't think I've ever seen something like this. I mean, it, the, the hit from T. Higgins, you know, um, it looked like just a regular hit. You see him pop up, and then he just sort of collapsed a few seconds later. And it was really a scary moment at that time. And essentially, he died on the field, and the paramedics had to come and try to bring him back. And then they brought him to the hospital. They had to do it again at the hospital. Um, it sounds like from the latest updates, he's, he's in a somewhat um, good condition. So we praise God for that, of, of course. And, we, and one of the things I, I keep saying is we need to make sure that we continue to pray for him, not only him, but his family as well. This, his family is going through a really tough time with all this, especially all the Buffalo Bill uh, organization going through this. And, but w one of the things I thought was just really interesting watching this game is all of a sudden these broadcasters on ESPN who normally never talk about God, never talked about Jesus or prayer before. I've, I've seen these guys over and over again. And all of a sudden, everyone had uh, Jesus on their lips. They're talking about God. They're talking about faith. They're talking about praying. So I thought that was interesting. All of a sudden, uh, they had this sudden need to start praying for this, um, this play, which obviously should be the right response yeah. we should be. But it was just that so was interesting see. seeing these kind of like um, usually secular commentators all of a sudden invoking prayer. Yeah, yeah, and the article, this article, I was impressed that it ended on such a biblical note. They talked about how Situations like this remind us of the value of human life, and that is a value that comes from God's word in Genesis. They actually said that, and it reminds us of the, the finitude and, and our mortality yeah. and our need for Jesus ultimately. So the, art, the author did a really great job in this, I think. And also, situations like this remind us that when someone is in a life-threatening situation, praying and caring are the right responses to that. So that then is a reminder that if they're the right responses for a situation involving one football player's life, how much more are they the right responses for the situation we're seeing elsewhere in the world where, according to the World Health Organization, you have 73 million babies being killed by abortion every single year. Praying and caring and doing something about it is the right response for that. And I think it shows too that like, just as much as people want to say America's becoming more and more non-religious, you know, the rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, and, you know, but really, in all honesty, I think a lot of that is a vocal minority. Um, I think even if, you know, not everyone, I'm not saying everyone's a born-again Christian, but they do have a respect for God, they do have a belief in God, um, and so we need to remember that, and we need to remember that people's hearts are really ripe, I think, for the word of God and for knowing the gospel, and, and we need to do our part in using things like this to really talk to people about, hey, you never know, this, this was a young man, he was in his mm -hmm. 20s, right? Mm -hmm. It can happen at any time, any place, and you need to know where you're going um, when you die, and so a real opportunity for that, and we have actually a great um, book 
called How Could a Loving God that really deals with this issue. You know, a lot of times when there's suffering and death going on, um, sometimes the reaction from people is, well, how could God do this? Why, you know, why would God strike this person down, you know, in the prime of their youth? Um, but uh, so how do we have an answer for that, right? Because people will either turn to God or turn away from God, but either way, they're thinking about God. And so it can be a real opportunity to talk to them of the fall and why these things happen and um, the, the gospel, again, and salvation through Christ. Go ahead. Did you want to say something? No, I was just going to say, I think, um, just real quick, the author did a really good job just, um, just laying out everything. I, I thought he did a good job of quoting Benjamin Watson here, who's the, uh, uh, he's a tight end who used to play for the Patriots and the Saints. He says, life can change in the blink of an eye. The Mars injury has made us all wrestle with this truth. It has served as a reminder of, a, of our own mortality. While we pray for him as he fights for his life, we must ask ourselves, where will we spend yeah. eternity? So yeah. definitely, I think, a, a, a good one to just kind of end on that one. Yep. And so one more resource. Um, and this is just a little self-promotion. So, <laughs> no. Uh, this is a new book that we have out. It's the first time we sold it here um, today. Hot off the presses. Yeah. yeah, Crafted by God. So um, this is a really great, interactive, engaging book for children that talks to them about the development of life in the womb. Um, also talks to them about things like the gender issue, the race issue. We talk about things like abortion. Um, it's got a lot mm -hmm. of cool, like, little interactive things where you can um, interact with your kids on this. Um, it's great for parents to read through with their kids. Older kids can read it on their own. And um, it really goes along nicely with our Fearfully and Wonderfully Made exhibit that we have here at the Creation Museum. So um, my friend and colleague, um, Stacia McKeever and I, we co-authored the book. And so we're really happy to see this out, a really true, truly genuine pro-life book for kids. A um, couple of other cool. things. Uh, if you... Now, how many of you remember these? Okay, Viewmasters, <laughs> right? Awesome. I used, to, I used to play with these. Um, these are cool. So 3D slide viewers, okay? And so we have those now. It's come back, you know, retro's in, right? And so we now have these for things like our Fearfully and Wonderfully Made exhibit, True Traveler, the museum, the Ark Encounter. So be sure to pick these up, right? Low tech, but I love it. Kids, kids are mm -hmm. still fascinated by these things, right? I think that's great. So um, you can pick those up in our uh, bookstores at the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. And then we also have our, our VBS for this year, Keepers of the Kingdom. So if you are a VBS director or you do these, um, th are involved in these things in your church, we have a tremendous VBS program. Um, we still have room. We have almost a thousand people signed up for our VBS showcase event, which is happening not this Saturday, but next Saturday. We also have the Stand Firm Conference the day before that. Um, so if you want a lot of really great teaching and understanding what our VBS is all about, uh, you need to come and check this out because as a, as a VBS director myself in my church um, and churches I've worked in, there's nothing else like it. Um, it's truly apologetic, gospel-oriented, um, really, really meaty content for kids. And last but not least, we've got a lot of things here. Why don't you talk about this event, Rob? Yes, a really huge event coming up. You guys don't want to miss this. Uh, next Wednesday, January 25th, we're actually going to not be online. We're not going to have Answers News because of this event. So Ken Ham and Jeff Durbin um, invite you guys to come to the Creation Museum right here in the beautiful Legacy Hall. We're going to have a meeting about ending abortion in the state of Kentucky. There's a bill of abolition going in with no partiality that will protect. Equal protection is what it's called. Uh, the bill for equal, equal protection for all lives 
beginning with the moment of fertilization. So really tell everyone you know, if you know any church leaders or pastors in Kentucky, if your church is interested in joining us to ending abortion, definitely come on down. Uh, we're going to have free parking, free admission, as well as lunch is going to be provided that day. Uh, and make sure you guys RSVP as well. Yeah. Um, if, if you guys want to, um, you can go to endabortionnow.com slash KY, or you can also go onto our website, click on the events page, and it'll pop you up to that uh, event there. Click on that, and then you'll be able to RSVP from there. Okay, great. Well, we're out of time for today, so we'll see you back next week. God bless.